Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Today's guest is Kelly Leonard. Kelly is the executive director of the Second City and the president of Second City Theatricals. He has worked with the Second City since 1988 and has overseen productions with such notable performers as Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey, Steve Carell, Adam McKay, Seth Meyers, Rachel Dratch, and Amy Poehler. Kelly co-founded Second City Theatricals, the division of the company that develops an eclectic array of live entertainment all over the world. He's here today to talk about his work and the intersection of improvisation and business. We're super excited to have you here today, Kelly. Would you mind giving the listeners just a little bit of your career journey and how you <laughs> got from where you are today? From- it's a weird one. Uh, yeah. So I started at the Second City in 1988. It was my first job out of college. Um, I had wanted to be a playwright. And my dad, who was a longtime media fixture here in Chicago for WGN, his name is Roy Leonard, he reviewed theater, so he knew a bunch of the theater people. And he got me a bunch of informational interviews. Uh, so I met with like Rock Schulfer at the Goodman and Bernie Sollins, who had founded Second City but was starting a new theater. And they both said the same thing, which is like, if you want to work in theater, work in a theater. You know, if it's tearing tickets, whatever. Um, and Bernie offered me a job. He, he said, look, my theater's not starting soon, but I can get you a gig at Second City. Uh, and so I don't know, you know, I... I, I did not know what the real world was like. I assumed I was going to walk in as director of marketing. Uh, <laughs> and on a Friday night um, in October of 1988, they walked me to the back kitchen and I was a dishwasher, um, which was just a horrendous job. Um, uh, uh, side note, the other person hired that week as a dishwasher was the film director, John Favreau. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, And we both had mullets. Uh, and he rode a motorcycle. And I can't ride a bike. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, cool and not cool. Um, no, we were both not cool. We had mullets. Uh, so anyway, I did that for a week or two and convinced Allison Riley, uh, who is the general manager there, uh, that I might be better suited uh, to host the room, seat the room. Uh, and so I started doing that. And then I went away to go work for Bernie's Theater called the Willow Street Carnival, which was hailed in Time Magazine as going to be like the next Second City. And of course, it flopped. Um, and I was out of a job in like six months. And so I went back, and my friend Ann worked in the box office, um, and I said, look, I'm, I'm getting married. My wife doesn't want me working nights. Uh, can you get me a, a, a job in the box office? And she's like, yeah, that's perfect. So you'll work during the day, every day. We've never had that. And then just work one night a week on Friday nights with me. Um, and that was great. I mean, this was like a magic time. I made so many great friends. Um, uh, and Ann ended up leaving, and I became the box office manager, um, and then I uh, – convince the powers that be that uh, they should have a, a director of sales position. So Second City at this point, we, you know, we were so popular, uh, we didn't have a brochure, um, we didn't have a website, um, you know, there were no computers, uh, there were no cell phones. Uh, so, you know, the thing I did when I became director of sales is I made a brochure and I set up a system with the concierge networks and just started, you know, being a bit of an entrepreneur. 
And Andrew Alexander, who was the owner of Second City, had been living in L.A., and he moved back to Chicago. Um, and in 1992, he offered me the position uh, at 26 years of age uh, to be the associate producer of the Second City, um, which was an incredible opportunity that I was in no way qualified <laughs> to do. I mean, just I got lucky. Um, and I got lucky because I was surrounded by such talent. So my first cast included uh, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Amy Sedaris. I hired Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, Horatio Sands, Jason Sudeikis, Keegan-Michael Key. I mean, it's just like, you know, you have uh, – the the incredible thing at Second City is the talent finds you. These people are out there. They're in the community. You just have to know where to look um, and you have to not be stupid. Uh, and then you can do okay stuff. Um, so it's – I'm sitting here 31 years later. Um, you know, I stopped the producing in around 2015 when I wrote a book called Yes And about how we take our improv – principles and put them into businesses. Uh, and I'm now the executive director of Insights and Applied Improvisation, which is a fancy title, to say that when I used to run the theater, I was worried about improv on stage. Now that I do this gig, I'm really more interested in improvisation off stage. Interesting. And wow, I'm going to unpack a, a couple of Go those areas. It. But I want to start off with the, uh, especially early on and in your career, Second City was you mentioned there was no flyers there was no nope. you know ways in the marketing, but it was still the hottest ticket in town. Yeah. So what what about that from that moment from that time period made it so special that just kept people coming back? Well, you know, um, we were a hit when we opened because um, we were the very first. There was no such thing as like an off loop theater. There was no, you know, storefront theater. We we started it in 1959. There was ne nothing anything like this. So, so and that first cast, you know, was incredibly talented. Alan Arkin and Barbara Harris who went on to amazing Broadway and then film success. Nichols and May who didn't make the transition from the predecessor of Second City, Compass Players, but talked about Second City and were certainly around. Um, and they were huge. Um, and we were very smart about our hiring and so that, you know, once that original cast left, you know, many theaters are so dependent on their founders. Um, and the great system at Second City is like y you become really good and then you go and you make space for the next person who's really good. So then you've got like Joan Rivers, Fred Willard, Robert Klein, and then Peter Boyle. And then suddenly um, uh, in the late 1960 – I think it was 1969, uh, there was a show called The Next Generation because it went from short hair and ties to long hair, sideburns, and that was Harold Ramis, John Belushi – Bill Murray, all those people came in, and then we opened the theater in Canada, uh, and that was John Candy, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Martin Short, Dave Tom. I mean, it was just Amazing. crazy, right? This goes on. So what really, though, so we were, we were always doing well, but it wasn't until Saturday Night Live hit the air, and then the Blues Brothers took off and all that, that we became a place like you had to go because mm -hmm. all these people came from there. Um, and that's when we moved from just being, you know, a, a, a stage to having touring companies to building what is now the largest training center of improvisation and comedy in the world uh, to building out a theatricals division uh, to creating Second City Works, this B2B arm that works with, you know, 800 clients a year, mostly Fortune 1000, um, you know, and then TV and film and, and digital media and all this different stuff. So um, it really, you know uh, – the thing, the thing I know about innovative businesses that last is that they can't just rely on being the best at something. Uh, they have to find adjacent expertise. 
They have to, you know, you think about the pharma companies that, you know, it's like they did one kind of science and they figured out there's a different kind of science. They don't stop doing the old science. They just keep adding it, right? right. And that's why they've been around 300, 400 years. Whereas I interviewed an author uh, about a great book called Leap, and he gives the example of a, a Steinway piano. Still the greatest piano in the world, and the company is nearly bankrupt. Um, they never knew how to adapt or change uh, so that they could stay around. So we're always looking at Second City, and it's probably because we're ADD and we're restless, mm -hmm. uh, but we're always looking for what else, and not something that's off-mission or off-brand, but what else could the expression of the work that we do, what else could it be? So it's interesting. So they always say that the, the funny thing about history is you never know when you're making it. Yeah, right. There's such a rich lineup of talent that has, mm -hmm. has come through Second City. How would you describe how that, that talent was cultivated? Because it, it seems like mm -hmm. they certainly could play off of each other and grow yeah. and kind of um, uh, lift each other up. But, but talk to me about the environment, the culture yeah. that w was set there. So the secret sauce of all this stuff is the pedagogy of improvisation. So everyone who is on that stage has been trained for multiple years in being, you know, a great improviser. Um, and improvisation, uh, it, it is itself a pedagogy. You learn by doing it. Um, so there's all these exercises in games um, that uh, you learn so that you can be a better listener, so that you can sustain focus longer, so that you can be resilient, especially in the face, face of just a constant stream of mistakes, which is how life is. Um, we make you agile. Uh, you know, it, this, it's a muscle. Um, and it, it's a very, you know, it's called soft skills, right? But I think we're all recognizing now, especially in a tech-enabled world uh, where AI can do so much that the, the things that will carry us through and make us, make us successful are our most human things. Um, and that is, you know, uh, responding in the face of a, a pattern that doesn't make sense, ambiguity. Um, and improvisation just makes you uh, uh, better at dealing with all of that. Um, it also is, I mean, I call it human being practice because it really makes you kinder in the moment. And it doesn't matter if you're not necessarily a kind person. Um, when you are improvising, if you are playing by the rules of improvisation, uh, it's forced kindness. And that tends to make people become kind, right? Uh, so an example of that is the, the principle of yes and. So um, uh, what we've recognized uh, over the years is that um, if groups of people are making something out of nothing, they're going to get nowhere when they say no. Um, and they don't get very far when they just say yes. They have to say yes and. They have to affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Um, and we, this ties really nicely to the principles of behavioral economics, which recognizes that people's default setting is either to do nothing or, or to say no. Um, so. Science knew this. Our founders knew this. And then we created an application, an exercise, where people are sort of forced to yes and. Now, you'll never go to Second City and see in the improv set people saying the words yes and uh, because it's now a mindset. You know, it's an, it's an idea. It's an orientation. But when you're beginning, you don't start with just like, oh, here's your mindset. You really have to physically say yes and over and over again until you don't have to. Just like great jazz musicians, you know, you play the scales and you play the scales and you do all that practice so that then you can riff off the tune. Or those great 
Chicago Bulls teams, which was once they once they answered the triangle, yep. it was like you need this discipline, this box that you can do anything inside. And it was that surrendering when Jordan surrendered the need to be right, like the need to always have the ball, but recognized he could be successful if he played inside the system where it was like jazz on the court. It was just amazing to watch. Um, and I think that's true now of most great teams. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. You've you've been in this game for a while. Yeah, who who is the best at improv? <laughs> there, if you had to... Yeah, there, I mean that 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 would be sacrosanct to the idea of improv. Um, David Pesquese, uh, who is a incredible improviser, part of a group called TJ and Dave with TJ Jagodowski. They're two great improvisers. He won uh, a Best Actor Award, Joseph Jefferson Award, which is like our local Tonys. Um, and when he got up, he apologized for receiving it, and it was clear that he didn't do his job because his job was to make everyone else look good. And I was just I, I I love that acceptance speech because mm-hmm. it was it was you know acknowledgement of our philosophy. Um, TJ and Dave, great improvisers. Tina Fey, great improviser. Um, Joe Liss, someone that you know a lot of people don't know, uh, but if you ask a certain era of Second City people, they'll say that is one of the great improvisers to come out of out of our work. Um, I, I don't know anyone who's as quick and funny as Martin Short. I mean, and that's off stage as much as on stage. I mean, he is relentless, um, relentlessly funny. Um, and then, I, I mean, I had the pleasure. I remember one time, it was years ago, Alan Arkin did a workshop at Second City, and he got up to improvise with cast members, and everyone was just like blown away. I mean, he, you know, such an incredible actor, but really the soul of an artist. Um, so I, I'm always delighted and surprised uh, by young talent as it evolves and grows and and they're all they all have a different arc you know so Adam McKay uh, comes on the scene who's the if, if you don't know he is Will Ferrell's uh, for, Will Ferrell's for, former partner in Funny or Die and did Anchorman and all those movies but then also did The Big Short and Vice Adam immediately was a 10 like I'm like you're incredible as an improviser Steve Carell was a slow burn he was there like eight years and it's not that he wasn't always good he just got better it was like how are you getting better I mean, it's just a completely different kind of arc. Um, so yeah, it's it's different with different generations, and it's it's. But there's ne- there's never one. And again, you never improvise alone. You know, so the the best improvisation, um, the only improvisation, is when it's done not just with your fellow partner, but the audience. They're they're a partner in it as well. So w- one of the things that I find so fascinating, you mentioned improvisation, and it sounds like that's really a methodology that yeah. you guys kind of subscribe to and I'm, I'm, I'm curious because the the listeners are probably looking for ways to tie that same methodology um, within their organization and if you had to pull kind of the key keys to being good at improv um, and kind of dissect that down just to a couple key points what would you say those are okay I mean, well it's behaviors and environments so everything's behaviors and environments um, the environment you want is one in which is, that environment is psychologically safe, right? There's been a lot of research on this. Um, and people can't do that uh, unless they have trust. Um, and so you have to have transparency. You have to create an environment where people, uh, if they make mistakes, they're not going to get yelled at. Um, they, it's a place where one needs to replace blame with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, an environment – example at Second City – uh, is when the resident main stage company is creating a new show. Um, uh, as a producer, when I was producing, I never went to the shows in the first few weeks because they were trying out material and like it, like they don't need the pressure of my eyes on that. And 
I would ask permission if I wanted to come into the rehearsal room. And I'd ask permission if I wanted to come to the show. Like, is tonight a good time? Because you never know. There could be, like, a fight in the cast. or And I don't want to know about that. They can take care of it. They should take care of it. Um, but then as the process moves on and on and on, gets closer to opening night, that's when, as a leader, I insert myself more in service of that ensemble. So your job is always in service of their vision. Um, and it's clear what that transaction is. And then on the behavior front, um, what you want for, from your people is to, um, you know, they need to make their uh, partner look good. Uh, they need to be um, extremely others-focused. Um, and then they have to co-create in such a way where the ego um, is not playing a factor at all. Um, you know, we mostly work in teams, mm-hmm. I think all of us, and we're not really trained to work in teams. Most of training or schooling or whatever is a very solitary effort. And those of us who, you know, did plays in, in school or were on sports teams got got some some of that. But it's it is a different expression when it is something that you have to, you know, create together and, and there isn't like the rules of a soccer team or a basketball team or or even putting on a play. Um, and impro- improvisation is very much that because, you know, it, it is all working without a script. Um, and uh, so, you know, we get hired by businesses all the time to come in and, you know, what are your pain points? You know, it's like, oh, people aren't listening to each other. Great. We, we, we have an app for that. And <laughs> uh, our app is we come in and we lead them through exercises, uh, which um, I'll give you an example of one. Uh, one of my favorites is called Last Word, uh, where we have people have a conversation. Uh, the only uh, rule is uh, you can't – you have to start your sentence with the last word that the other person spoke. Go. And the amazing thing is, is that's hard uh, because usually we stop listening about halfway through once someone's saying something um, because we're formulating our thought and we don't want to look stupid. But we're probably missing crucial information uh, that comes at the end. And you can't do that when you're improvising on stage because we, we know that, that that could have – or in a conversation like this. Like you, you have to listen all the way through because you, right. you know what bombshell could have just – you miss somehow. Uh, but in real life, we don't operate like that. So you know, first you do the exercise. You have that recognition of like, oh, I don't do this. Okay, what does it feel like when I do do this? And guess what? It feels great. You take your time, you listen all the way through, and guess what? The other person, they know you're actually listening to them, and that is like, that is an aphrodisiac. I mean, this is a, I, uh, there was a great – Nir Eyal is a uh, behavioral scientist who wrote a great book. Uh, I interviewed him for my podcast, and he had uh, – someone wrote into him and said this line that if it can't be used for evil, it's not a superpower. Improvisation is a superpower, and, you, and like, it is the province of great uh, you know, talent and also con men. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a scenario where you talked about Steinway and mm-hmm. the uh, evolution or lack thereof, especially on the innovation front, to, to stay in front of the market, if you will. Um, Second City has done a great job of evolving and staying mm-hmm. ahead of the curve and kind of being forward thinking. One of the areas is in partnerships, and recently yeah. you partnered with uh, the Booth of um, School of Business uh, mm-hmm. booth um, to study behavior science mm-hmm. as it relates to improv. Can you talk a little bit about what spurred that partnership? And, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I was out on book tour for Yes And, um, and I was at the Aspen uh, um, Ideas Festival, 
And I was getting texts from our owner who was concerned about like touring company sales, like of $1,000 or something. And I'm like, do I really want to be, I'm here in Aspen. I'm like, Ariana Huffington's in the audience. Like, and I, when I got back, I, I, you know, we got in this conversation. I was like, I think I want to do. So I don't want to worry about that stuff anymore. Um, and he was very gracious. Uh, he was like, Look, you're unemployable anywhere else. So uh, why don't we make you a consultant for a year, and you can figure out either a way to have a bridge in back into Second City or, or a bridge out. Um, and I don't know if you remember the Second City caught on fire. Uh, so we had this fire. The adobo grill below us had a grease fire, and it destroyed all our offices. So then I was kicked off uh, site, and um, I was with the corporate group, Second City Works, in the accounting department, not people I hung out with a bunch. Um, <laughs> but, but in a conversation, this is, this is one of these things I talk about, which is the power of being uncomfortable, that you need to get yourself uncomfortable as a way to sort of, you know, um, create new ideas and see things that maybe you had no way of seeing before. Uh, so Steve Johnston, who was the boss at that time of Second City Works, said to me, well, you're over here, and you, you know – you don't have anything going. What would you create if you had to create something for me? And I said, well, interesting. When I was on book tour, uh, I would always go into the bookstore to see if my book was on the shelf. So I'd go to the business section. And um, I would often see books on the art of negotiation. And they would always mention improv. Like I'd look in the index and I'd be like, yeah, a thing on improv. But it was always like the basis thing and, you know, just like surface level. So I said, what if we found a scholar – in that area of negotiation, and we co-created yeah, a product. He's like, great, go do it. So I Googled uh, academic Chicago negotiation, got a list of the top five professors, or seemingly of that, sent them all emails, uh, and everyone got back to me except for one. Uh, I lined up meetings. Everyone was into this idea. Finally, the fifth got back to me, Eugene Caruso at the University of Chicago. And, you know, like old Kelly would, wouldn't have gone to this meeting because I had like this stuff lined up. But I'm now in this like Shonda Rhimes year of yes bullshit. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take the meeting. And he said, well, great. I'm going to invite my wife, Heather. I think she'd be interested in this as well. She's also a professor. So I go up there. And I'm doing my rap about improv. Um, Eugene's falling asleep in his chair. Heather's locked in. Um, and I don't really know her at all or what, what she does. Um, and she says to me, after I finish talking, she's like, you know, Kelly, um, you're talking about um, uh, your improvisational pedagogy. You know, we work in a science where we examine why people make bad decisions. Um, and you seem to have an art form and a pedagogy that explores that and gives people a chance to practice making a better decision. I don't think those two things have ever been put together. And we should have more conversation. And we talk for like an hour. Uh, and I leave. And my wife, Ann Libra, uh, is uh, a scholar of this work. And she runs the uh, first ever BA in comedy writing and performance with Second City and Columbia College Chicago. And I'm like, you got to meet this woman. Like, I, I, this could be like our next incredible work. Um, and so two days later, we came up and had a coffee. And, you know, we haven't stopped talking since. And so Heather and Ann and I, uh, with a couple of our other colleagues, created this thing called the Second Science Project, which looks at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation. Sometimes it's the scholar saying, here's a piece of research. Do you have an improv exercise that ties to it? Sometimes it's us doing, we do this exercise, like the yes and exercise. Can you tell us if there's science underneath it? Or should we go do a study uh, to figure out what's going on or, or some you know 
other phenomenon going on. We've been doing this uh, for about four years now. We did executive education programs. We've done workshops with companies. We're uh, close to completing our first big study. Um, that'll become a paper and then hopefully a book. Um, and it's fascinating because the you know the the, the, the it's so it's so tied to our work, their study of human behavior, uh, and and now digging into that has made me realize that. The reason Second City has been so successful is because it examines human behavior, which is always funny, especially when it's messed up, right? That's the great comedy. Um, but this improv stuff is an expression of what it means to communicate as a human. And, you know, I heard this phrase once, and I just think it's true, that any business problem is likely a communication problem. I, don't, I think that covers it. Absolutely. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's the mic drop moment. It's, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious. Um, I don't know if you can let any of the cats out of the bag in terms of the uh, yeah. insights that you have, but um, I'm curious is that the, some of the insights that have been developed. Sure. So we started a, a, a spinoff um, a program with a group called Caring Across Generations called Improvisation for Caregivers, um, and uh, I Jen Poo runs that uh, organization, and she's an amazing MacArthur Genius grantee. She's part of Supermajority with Alicia Garza and Cecile Richards right now, um, very powerful human being. Um, and we got connected up through Adam Grant, the author and Wharton Scholar, um, and started talking about this work that we we're doing at the University of Chicago. And she's like, this would be perfect for people in the caregiving community. It strikes me this stuff is perfect for the people on the front lines of crisis management, that sort of thing. So one of the exercises from that program got spun off from an insight we got from the behavioral science group. And Nick Epley is the scholar at the University of Chicago who looks at this. Um, so he discovered, and he just did a second study in London. There was one done in Chicago, and the second one also confirmed it, that people wildly underestimate how other people want to hear about themselves. So we, we think other people don't want to hear about us. And so we, we withhold all the time. However, when we actually share, uh, we create quicker and faster bonds. So especially in like, like a caregiving uh, uh, context, like a nurse with a patient or whatever, mm-hmm. um, the ability to uh, uh, share information quickly um, and, and personally uh, helps immeasurably. Uh, so Anne created an improv exercise out of this called Universal Unique. Uh, and we pair two people up and we say, okay, universal person, uh, you are going to tell uh, the uh, unique person um, the way that most people grocery shop. You have a minute to do this just the way most people grocery shop. And so that person shares their information. It's usually not remarkable. There's no laughter. And now we say to the other person, all right, unique person, you are going to share the way you grocery shop. And inevitably in one minute, people are laughing because they're talking about like they – of course, they're going to have their bags, but then they forgot their bags and they have to decide <laughs> whether they go back. And it's like all this stuff before you even get to the grocery store. And and so – and then we break it down afterwards like, OK, so what, what was happening there? And it's like, well, it was quirky and it was like – and I could relate to this stuff. And like, yeah, because it was real. They shared something authentic. Right. People do not – and this is the thing that's true about comedy. It's like the get into the specifics. Comedy is great when it's deeply specific. Um, and, we, and somehow we think the the specificity is not going to be universal. But that is the stuff that's universal, the things Absolutely. that make us human. So that's an example of an exercise that you know we got out of the science uh, aspect of it and saw a way to make it come to life for individuals You know, sort of participating in this class and then use it in real life. I love that story. And I'm interested, you know, especially in the business context mm. – 
people have these walls up, right? Right. Because you're at work. How much is too much to share? But I'm interested as as how people react in the business world to some of these exercises that make that kind of force them to open up. Oh, I mean, I mean, you know, like like the. the greatest percentage is like, oh my God, thank you. The smallest percentage is scared of it because it shakes up, um, you know, it, 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 it shakes up the way we've badly been doing work. Um, it shakes up the hierarchy. Um, it's risky. I mean, we keep saying, everyone says they want innovation, you know, and, and you know, do you? <laughs> do you? Because it doesn't feel like you're setting up spaces where people can actually innovate, which requires testing, which requires failing over and over again. It requires risk. Um, but there's ways of mit- – the way to mitigate the risk, quite frankly, is by more innovation up front and early. Um, and that's what we do in the Second City process is like we, we go out with an abundance of crazy ideas. Not that we're going to keep all of them. You don't yes and forever. You yes and, yes and at the beginning and then you use a lot of no. And but the thing is the no is fine then because everyone's ideas have been vetted and heard. And we all know – we all want the best idea. And usually it's never one person's idea. Uh, so it's a very egalitarian um, uh, process. Um, and I think the business world is craving it. Um, especially the generations that are now starting to take charge, especially as more women and people of color uh, become leaders. Um, Because, you know, it is honestly the dominant white straight patriarch that has set up some of the most horrible systems um, for people to excel at work. uh, You know, the outliers make the discoveries. That's always been the case. Absolutely. So, and one of the things you recently wrote was around diversity of thought, mm-hmm. and, and saying that it was it's the key to the original thinking, um, and that improvisation nudges individuals to break their old patterns and investigate innovation. So, uh, how do you really think about improv as it relates to diversity of thought? Yeah. And, well, um, uh, you know what we're talking about is divergent thinking. Um, so the idea there is that most human beings develop – we're looking for a pattern that's familiar to us. So it is easier for me to look across uh, the desk uh, at a straight white male who might be 53 like I am because uh, I get it. I understand it. But then I have also experience with a white woman and then, a, you know, a straight white woman. And then, you know, so the – but the farther I go out of that as a human being, if the person across me I don't know anything about – the normal sort of this is the the neurological aspect of this. You know, your your uh, fight or flight part of your brain kicks in. I mean, this is we're talking about something like in the world we live in right now, which is it's so tribal and terrible. Um, but in part, that's because people are so scared of these of of finally of finally seeing that people are. Uh, people who express themselves in who they truly are um, have always been around. They just hadn't had – it hasn't been a safe, a psychologically safe space for them to do that. Um, so in improvisation, um, you can't otherize someone. You, you, you can't. And you have to accept all the information that's put out there in the room because that's the, that's the only stuff you have to work with. It's great. Um, so – you know, if you are identifying as a blue Martian, I have to like accept that and go with that. In fact, that's kind of fun. It gives us something unusual to work with. So it is an, an it is an orientation around equity. It's an orientation that that gives you 
dignity, that assumes your dignity. Um, it is so inclusive and so ironic that I'm, I'm talking about this because the art form is the, – the pedagogy is that, that has always been traditionally an art form that was so male and so white. That's changing, changed, changing, let's say. Um, uh, but the art always had it right even if the people didn't necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the work that we do at University of Chicago on Second Science Project is based in this. We created um, uh, the orientation programs uh, for all the incoming freshmen. Uh, the program was called Hearing One Another. Um, and I love, uh, can I tell you about an exercise that we did? Absolutely. This is, I love this exercise. So we get all the freshmen in a circle um, and the prompt is that the instructor is going to state an attribute. Um, I'm wearing jeans today. And anyone in the circle who identifies with that attribute, they're wearing jeans today, they need to move to another place in the circle. So it starts with stuff like that. And then it says, I identify as Christian, or I identify as Jewish. And it says, I'm a hunter. And then you're like, and slowly as you keep adding this on, you're like, the vegan is a Republican who's gay. That like I would never put these things. And so it all that all that bias kind of slips away because you are seeing a full human, or you're being you know in this very sort of banal setting of just being just them moving from one space to another. Um, and it really opens the door for you've probably made a bunch of assumptions about me um, that if you just took the time to ask a few more questions, you realize those assumptions are not quite right. Um, and again, unfortunately, the world we live in today is, you know, we're blocking and we're canceling and we're assuming and all, and, and I'm talking about everyone does that. And it's terrible and it's ripping us apart. And it is, it is not the way we build. It is the way we destroy. Um, and I think, I think, I don't know. For me, I think more of us uh, believe the other is better, and we just have to come together to fight for it. And that exercise sounds like it, it's a great start because it yeah. it, it sounds like um, there, there was an exercise I did one time in an agile retrospective on an IT project that was closest to the sun. It was you, you kind of stand in a circle. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of that process of answer, you know, asking a question as the prompt walking, taking a step forward to see mm -hmm. how, how much people can um, can come in closeness and proximity to each other. Mm -hmm. And finding that commonality is, because you're right, most people um, underestimate how much people want to hear about the, the, the other mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. And uh, opening that up allows that. Yep. So that's amazing. Yep. So a lot of people know you from the, the yes and mm -hmm. um, phrase, but you also have another one um, called take the note. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I usually toss an f bomb in there. <laughs> Take the effing note. Uh, yeah, this is this is this comes straight out of the theater. Um, when a director is working with an ensemble, that director is there to serve the interests of the ensemble. Um, and so, uh, after the improv set um, or the next day, um, the director will give notes to to the ensemble on the things that that person saw in the performance or the improv set. Um, and what we've realized in that in feedback, uh, which is, you know, don't fight it, that, don't challenge it, don't question it. Um, just take the note. Uh, you don't have to actually do the note. You can ignore the note completely. You say thank you, you know, and that's it. And then later, if you have a clarifying question or later you want to explore it, that that's fine. But when everyone starts fighting the notes. 
um, it, everything breaks down. Um, and, and you do, you become defensive and, you know, you, you, my, my friend Kim Scott wrote a book called Radical Candor and we've developed a program with her. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea, it's, is a very radical candor thing, which is like, you can only be radically candid with someone if they know that, um, they, that you love them. That's, that's the thing. Otherwise it's obnoxious aggression. <laughs> You're just being an asshole. <laughs> uh, but there's a whole grid inside there that she's got, which is, and the one that I fall into is this one called ruinous empathy, which is I care so much. I'm not going to say anything. And then I just let you drown, uh, because I just don't want to hurt your feelings. But like the right thing to do, uh, would be, you know, I love you. I'm going to give you this note. Um, because that's what we want from the people who, who love us. We want them to give us the hard note that we need to hear. Um, and that requires a back and forth. So, so take the note is really an expression of that. It, it is like, hear it, uh, process it, use it if you want. It's there to make you better. Um, feedback's tricky, man. I mean, it's like most of the studies show it doesn't work. That people aren't, you know, like this idea of like the the um, co- the compliment sandwich or the you know the idea of the uh, compliment and then bad thing then a compliment that right. doesn't work. You just hang on to the bad note. <laughs> right. That's, that's what we that's all do. Think about. <laughs> so instantaneous feedback, and this is why, you know, when you're improvising in front of an audience, it's the best kind of feedback because if they're not laughing, then you're not doing it right, and you want to get them to laugh. And no one's taking that personally. You're not up there. Well, some comics take it personally, but <laughs> they shouldn't. Uh, that they, they fine tune and they adjust, and then they find it so they're getting the laugh. And like, oh, okay, let me remember, you know, how I got that or why I got that. And then the director's there to also say, I know why you got that. I saw it from the outside. So it is very much, um, you know, you think about the way that uh, startups are, have to make, you know, products. It's like we're doing rapid prototyping, but we're doing it with creativity. Right. Not, you know, a machine. Absolutely. So you have a podcast of your own. I do. And I'm sure you've had some very interesting conversations. So I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that and, and any particular conversation that, that um, specifically is resonated related to innovation. Oh, God, so many. So the podcast is called Getting to Yes And, and it's at WGN Radio and also Second City. Um, and it started out sort of thinking, well, I should interview, you know, business authors. And, and I still do that. Um, but I'll go far afield. Um, I just had on uh, Shannon uh, Watts from Moms Demand Action. And she uh, has just written a book, um, uh, Fight Like a Mother. Um, and I had I had assumptions about who Shannon Watts might be, and they were not true. Um, I assumed that she had a history of you know gun violence in her family. Not true. She was a branding and marketing person for like twenty years, very successful. Uh, who uh, was building a second marriage with a blended family, decided to try being the stay-at-home mom of five kids. Sandy Hook happened that shooting, and she had it. And so she was just like, I can't take this anymore. I can't be an individual sitting on the sides. She created a Facebook group. It blew up. And she was sort of like, I guess I have to run a movement now. And so this book is as much about, you know, how you take that that passion and purpose um, uh, that you sort of spontaneously threw out there. It comes back to you in a bigger way where you didn't expect it to talk about a huge yes and, say yes and to it, um, and then how do I become a leader? And she talks a lot about her mistakes and how she had to, you know, cede control. That was a big thing. She wanted to control everything, and she's like, this is not going to work if I don't let other people own it uh, in addition to me. And then, you know, and this went to, it became a, an army of a, millions and millions of mothers, um, and they passed some really important legislation. We talked a bit about that. We talked a bit about the gun stuff, but we talked a lot about what it meant to be a woman working 
in corporate America or running a movement um, and how um, people look to marginalize uh, you. Um, it's fun. I think I told her about this in this podcast. Uh, we have an exercise that we do in some of our DNI training called uh, Justin Little, which is we have one person describe their uh, what they do at their work, what's their job like in about a minute, and then the other person has to say it back to them what they just said, but using the words Justin Little. So it's so demeaning. <laughs> it's like so you just do this little thing where you know you help out other moms and you just have this thing where it's kind of like a little meetings, right? Right? It's just like and 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 especially for men getting being on the receiving end of that, you know, it's it's a very telling thing. It bruised the ego. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that was amazing. And then um, I just recalled this the other day. I had on Horst Schultz, who was the um, CEO of Ritz-Carlton Hotels. So Ritz-Carlton was a very prestigious European brand that had been done for years. Um, And it got brought back to life um, like in the 60s, 70s, something like that. And Horst ended up being the guy who took over. And this – as for, I have a friend who is a Second City alum. Her name is Fran, Fran Adams, uh, who decided not to stay in the industry. She became a Ritz-Carlton concierge in, in California. And I told her I was having lunch. She's like, that's like Ardell Close, who's a famous improv guru. She's like, this guy is amazing. And he was. And he was so kind and so smart. And one of the things that he wrote about in his book and we talked about, which is Horst gives every employee uh, at Ritz uh, a budget of $10,000 per customer uh, to help out someone. If, if something goes awry, you can spend up to $10,000 to help someone staying at the hotel. Now, they rarely do, uh, but there's been situations where someone gets their suit ruined. They're like, we're getting you a new suit. We're just doing it. And that orientation is such a liberating thing for the person working on the front lines, just knowing that I will not get in trouble if I just need to, you know, fix a mistake um, or get this person a plane ticket because they lost that. And you're building customers for life. I was just like, that's such a like an incredibly smart um, uh, policy to have. Absolutely, and I, I, I wouldn't, I can't imagine staying anywhere else after somebody. Someone did me that, that, right? Yeah. Of course, and and talking it and socializing it with all your friends and family. That's right. Yeah, it's magic, that's bro. So improv is such a powerful tool. You've done such a great job of communicating some of the value that it brings, and certainly there's a lot of proponents of of improv. If I'm a listener and I'm, let's say, in charge of innovation initiatives within my respective company, what steps would you recommend that I take in order to introduce improv as a, a mechanism for learning and growth um, for teams. Yeah, well, first call Second City. <laughs> Hire us. Um, it, here, it, it's not you're not going to go from zero to innovation, right? Um, it, there, it's a process. Um, so recognizing, yeah, it's the same idea when you go to the gym, right? You you don't go to the gym once or let's say five times and you're done. Uh, you really want to uh, make it a regular practice and a right. Um, so. You start with the workshops. You bring in experts to work on people's listening. Um, you stay there for a little bit. That's that. That doesn't get solved. And then you look at what what prompts can I have in, inside you know my meetings? Can we have a meeting once a week that we know no one can say no at? No is prohibited in this meeting. And those are good for brainstorming meetings. Um, that they are just sort of yes and festivals. Um, and there's other things that that you can do if you've got um, an employee who is, holds back and is um, sort of introverted and not able to share. You as a leader in an organization, it's your job to make space for them to share. 
You know, don't don't change them. They are they are what they and, and we know this about like you, many people are in, in uh, uh, introverts or people who are on the spectrum in some way uh, have incredible uh, neural diversity to offer uh, us and, and and a perspective that's unlike anyone else's. Um, so so recognizing that you need to load up your environment with uh, diverse thinkers, uh, diverse beings, um, and give them the ability to be successful. So you know. Working with experts in improvisation over a period of time to scale that throughout throughout the organization, and then how are you messaging it um, in the way you set up your environment as a business, in the way you speak about your business, um, uh, that that level of transparency. You know, it's often said that you want to give praise in public um, and sort of criticism in private. Totally true, uh, but for leaders, uh, for the power of uh, people seeing their ability to take criticism in public is, is, is never to be underestimated. Um, and I, the expression I saw of this, and I will never forget it, was Second City has a holiday party every year. And what happens is the staff takes over the stage and they do a show that is sort of parody scenes of, of the scenes that are on stage and that current, whatever the current shows are, uh, but they're all ripping management. It is just a rip fest. <laughs> And I've had new people come in and be like, how are you de- – like, they're just killing you. And I'm like, I love – what are you talking about? This is the best. And one of the shows – and this is a very long time ago. Um, uh, the waitresses were singing a song, uh, and uh, they uh, are crescendoing, and they are walking off stage right in front of Andrew Alexander, our owner. And the line in the song was like, you know, you can dress up a pair of jeans like nobody, but why don't we have insurance? And we're all like cringing. <laughs> Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, but the next day, Andrew called all the management team and goes, we got to get them insurance. What are we doing? Let's find a way. And we did. And I was like, "That's that." but it was a safe space, a theatrical space to speak truth to power. So, you know, the, we had to create the environment in which they felt safe to criticize us. And we felt safe in taking the criticism. You know, it's never a one-way street. It's... It's at least a duality, if not more. And I'm talking about everything in the world. So in this, the mistake we, we often make in this sort of innovation space is thinking there's a direct line or it's one thing. And it's never. And context is going to change. And you're going to have to probably do it differently, this huge successful thing you had in a couple of years because some weird thing happened. Um, I mean, that's my experience over and over again. And we're very lucky at Second City and that, you know, we talked earlier about talent, the fact that we – basically kick out our best talent year after year after year would seem crazy, but it has allowed us to see anew um, through new talent's eyes. Um, so it sort of forces us into that discomfort, um, which then allows us uh, to be the best innovators that we can possibly be. Well said. So you mentioned evolution in, in Second City. I'm curious, is what does the, the next phase of evolution look, look like? <sighs> I don't know completely. Um, I, uh, for me, some of the things I'm looking at are how do we get this work into the hands of everyone, which means how do we give away this work, and how do we make money giving away this work? And I think we can. Uh, so it's sort of like uh, uh, looking at you know business models, uh, uh, media, digital. You know, we we work in the in those areas, but we haven't made the breakthrough thing yet. Um, how, do, how do we do that? Um, 
physical space. You know, I, I often say that the person who figures out how to turn improv into yoga is going to be a billionaire. Um, everyone needs this practice, and we have these third spaces, places like Starbucks or you know, spin the the spin classes. You know, can we create improv rooms where people can go and uh, work out their conversations, work out their pitches, work out their proposal? Uh, work out their romantic conversations, um, work out how they can communicate more effectively with other human beings. Um, uh, so I'm always looking at that. And I just had a conversation the other day with a potential partner about like, what do we know about spaces? What, what do we know about, can we look at what's happening with WeWork right now, um, uh, which is a great idea that somehow isn't working? Uh, you know, what? what is the core component that's great, and is there something in it that we can bring to the table that would make it actually work? Um, so that so I'm, I'm always playing around, and, and because I get to interview these different people every week from all these different fields, uh, so I always read the book, and then I have to spit back the information at them, um, and that's creating a true learning loop. You know, I'm reading more than I've ever read, and I'm reading more deeply, and then I'm, you know, embodying it. Um, and so those conversations almost always yield a, well, what if we did this together? Um, I interviewed Rami Nishishibi uh, from the Muslim Action Network um, on the south side of Chicago, who does amazing work in the community. Um, and it was just a fascinating story to hear his tale of coming from the Middle East uh, to Chicago and staying at the University of Chicago and recognizing there was a disconnect between these wonderful ideas he was learning at the university and then his neighborhood where he would go back to where none of that was in play. And he's like, okay, I got to be the guy. Um, and he's been doing it. Um, and it was just that it, 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 and we stayed on the phone for like a half hour to 40 minutes afterwards, just talking about like, we got to do something. So when he gets back from, he's in Jerusalem, uh, we're going to meet up and talk about what, what could we cook up together? That's so awesome. yeah, lots of stuff. So last question, the most yeah. important question of the day, what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? Wow. I'm going to say my podcast. I think it's my podcast. I'm not, I'm not listening to my podcast, I'll tell you that. No, I like that that is my zen is to be in the car and whether it's, you know, the daily or Pod Save America or still processing uh, or on being. I mean, this is like I have a diverse collection of things that I listen to and ideas and I like to hear stories. Um, and I like to learn hardcore history. I'm, in, I'm interviewing Dan Carlin for the podcast because I love his podcast. This guy spins like six-hour conversations about history, <laughs> and it's fascinating. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm going to say my podcast app. Fantastic. Well, thank you for taking the time today. I, this was absolutely amazing. Um, a big fan of yours, and um, thank you for taking the time. If there's any particular place that – um, listeners can follow you online. You yeah. or Second City? Do you have any? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, KL Second City. Um, so you can follow me there. You can find me on LinkedIn and connect. I connect with everyone. Um, and SecondCityWorks.com uh, hosts the podcast, and a lot of my writing is up there. Um, but yeah, and you know, you can email me KLeonard at SecondCity.com. I'm easy to find. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.